everyone to the Just James Horror Review. I'm your host, Just James, and today we will be going over the film Magic, a 1978 film with Anthony Hopkins. So grab your dummy, shove your hand deep up his ass. This is episode 22. Welcome back, everyone. So glad to be back on the show, back to our our regular horror movie reviews. That's where it all started. That's where I feel at home, and I'm glad to be reviewing this 1978 film, Magic, that was directed by Richard Attenborough. I will say, if you missed it on the Gravely Serious podcast, I was a guest host on there two episodes ago, So, or I guess that would be last week. So last week, go to their episodes. We covered Malum. Later on, I'm going to do one over Malum and night shift so look out for that it's coming up soon watch both films i'll cover them both in one episode but the gravely serious guys you guys are awesome they're such gracious hosts and uh, had a whole lot of fun on their show they're great i love their vibe everything about them is good so go on there have a listen and yeah let's get started let's talk about magic Magic is a horror film about a, I guess it's going to be a psychological horror film. It stars Anthony Hopkins when he was extremely young. And really, I'd forgotten, I'd seen this movie a long time ago and forgot that that was even him that was in it. He's very much the Anthony Hopkins then that he is now. His acting chops, his sensibilities, how he does everything, his whole method, it's all there. Fantastic acting in this film. And again, this is going to be one of those films where his acting really is the whole movie. So props to him for carrying this film on his back. It did well. I won't say he did all the all the hard lifting. Cinematography is great. I thought it was a really good story. There wasn't a whole lot of plot holes or things that didn't really make a lot of sense. Where you're just like, now why in the fuck would he do that? So uh, I enjoyed it. I love the slow descent that you get to watch on the film of him just kind of fall into this psychosis that comes to an end that you actually get to see at the end of the film that's really cool you kind of know that it's there but you don't really get to see it in until this full uh break at the end so as i had said earlier it's directed by richard attenborough he hasn't really directed a whole lot of other stuff i mean he's got a bunch of other films but nothing that really stands out he directed chaplin so i guess that's kind of notable but even more notable for me was he was john hammond in the Jurassic Park films. So that to me, I mean, this movie and that, I mean, what else does he need, right? So he was John Hammond. If you don't remember, John Hammond was the guy with the cane with the little sap, you know, ball at the end of it with the uh, mosquito in it. So that's him. He also played Chris Kringle, I think, on the most recent Miracle on 34th Street. So he, you know, when Santa Claus had to go to court, when he got caught by the American court system, we're going to get you, Santa Claus. And they tried to on a Miracle on 34th Street. So if you haven't seen that, he's played Santa Claus in that. So, yeah. Uh, Anthony Hopkins is in this. Uh, Burgess Meredith and Anne Margette, I believe is how you say her name. But if you don't remember, Burgess Meredith, he is the guy. He played uh, He played Ammon in Clash of the Titans. He played in Grumpier Old Men. And also, well, and Anne um, Mar- Margette also played in Grumpier Old Men. But... He was also the Penguin in the Adam West Batman series. So now do you know who I'm talking about? If you don't know, he also played the coach in Rocky. Probably his most notable role for people in this time period. If you grew up, if you're around the same age range that I am, you'll, you'll remember him the most from that. But he was the Penguin in the old Batman series. 
Another thing that I wanted to mention in this film is the writer, William Boldman. Now, looking into stuff that he has written, he also writes books, and actually this film is based off his book. But he also wrote The Princess Bride. Holy shit, how cool is that? He wrote the screenplay for the movie Dreamcatcher. If you've seen that, I'm not going to go into it. But And does anyone remember the 1994 film Maverick? It, it was about gambling in the Old West. It had Mel Gibson and Jodie Foster, of all people, to work in an Old West film. If you haven't seen that movie... It is a whole lot of fun. Definitely early 90s type film, just, you know, cock of the walk kind of dude that's, you know, gambler with a with a soft spot kind of thing. And it's just a cool film. So, you know, back before Mel Gibson was the, the, the Mel Gibson of today, I guess. So, you know, and uh, Jodie Foster, bae. so uh, it's, it, it's a cool movie. But this guy also did the screenplay for Misery. So the writer for this film... Is, is just off the chain. I mean, he's done all these great things, you know, did Misery. You imagine that you're a writer and you're writing a screenplay for a Stephen King book, how, you know, he took that on. I thought that's pretty, pretty ballsy. So, yeah, that's who we have working on this film. Let's talk about it. So our film is going to start out with this great, long, slow panning shot of this really just kind of, I guess it's a shitty apartment, but it's more shitty just because there's stuff everywhere. Everywhere you look, there's just stacks of boxes and all this other stuff. And the more you start looking at it, you begin to notice that all these things are performance-related. So you see there's, you know, tools for magic tricks. There's ventriloquist dummies laying around. There's, you know, card tables and stuff like that. You notice that the whole room is full of this kind of stuff. So it pans around and it ends up on a guy that you see an older man laying on a couch and he looks sick. He's got the blanket pulled up, you know, he's laid out looking very much like Peepaw in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. So this dude's laid up. It's almost generic in the way that he's laid up. But a guy comes in and the old man is super excited to see him. He starts asking him questions about how did your show go? Did you do great? Did you do this trick right? And he's calling the guy Corky. So we meet Corky. He is going to be Anthony Hopkins' character and our main character throughout this film. Now, a cool thing that they do here is while Corky is talking to the old man, whose name is Merlin, we found that out later, and at first I thought, oh, is this going to be some kind of weird like time-traveling thing where Merlin comes back and he's mentoring some guy? No, it was just... The guy's name was Merlin, and it was that, Corky's mentor. So, anyway, he's asking Corky how his first show went. Corky goes to a, a bar for one of those things where you can just kind of show up and do your act. And he goes there, and he does his act. So, while he's telling Merlin the story about how he killed, and he performed every trick just right, he did all the things right, it's showing you what actually happened, where Corky goes up on stage, and, of course, Anthony Hopkins' acting here is just fantastic where he's you know he he very much plays the guy who knows what he's doing but is very nervous not confident in what he's able to do constantly afraid of failure and all that and he's talking to Merlin he's going on about how great he did well Merlin finally just tells him that you know he knows bullshit when he smells it so much and he's like you know I I, you know what happened kid what happened and he goes in this thing about how he failed that's a theme throughout the movie where Corky will say, I don't want to fail, or I failed, or I'm a failure. It just keeps popping up. So you realize that they hammer that home pretty hard, that that's going to be a big part of his uh, mental 
breaking point, that kind of stuff. The, the stuff that's kind of sent him over the edge that put him in that position. But there is a cool part when he's up there doing his card tricks and it shows different audience members and, you know, people aren't really paying attention to, to what he's doing. And there's a lady that's just laughing like super loud and being annoying. There's people that aren't paying attention that are just, you know, rattling their drinks and all this kind of stuff. And you get that sense that he's feeling of how nervous you are. And these people could give a shit less kind of, and he's doing, I'm going to say maybe one of the showstopper tricks where he floats a card up with one hand. It looks like it's coming out of the deck on its own. And Merlin just keeps asking him about, did you do it? Did you do it? Quirky? Did you do it? He says, yeah, I did it. Well, he does the trick and nobody claps and no one cares. And it shows him just freak out where he's just, just snaps and starts yelling at people about, you know, how, how they just watched a thousand hours of his life in a couple of seconds. And, you know, I really thought about this too. So I think about today on, on Instagram or things like America's Got Talent or any of these shows where it showcases these people just doing awesomely amazing, impossible things. TikTok, wherever it is, YouTube that you see this stuff and we're just inundated with it all the time, all the time, all the time. You see it. So it becomes less impressive. You know, some guy does some kind of awesome shred on the guitar. Well, that's great. I've seen a thousand other people do it. You see someone do, you know, twist their body into odd shapes or sword swallowers or, or whatever it might be, whatever the act is, you've probably seen, you know, 10 to 25 other acts do the exact same shtick. So I think we kind of become jaded to it. And I think that's what Anthony Hopkins character. Well, I know that's what Anthony Hopkins character was saying in this is I spent thousands and thousands of hours to perfect this one trick to do this one amazing thing to just wow you guys and you guys could give a shit less. And, you know, as a performer, I can only imagine what that feels like. These people that are doing that are you know, when musicians go out on stage and people don't appreciate that they've been playing guitar their whole life or drums or they've been singing their whole, you know, uh, since they were a kid or whatever. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of a, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thought to really just kind of sit back on and, and, and consider. So, you know, it pulled that out of me somehow as I was watching the movie, I decided to go <laughs> deep into that, uh, whatever, but all right. So moving on Merlin ends this whole conversation that he just basically says, you need to charm them, Corky. You got to charm them and you got to talk to the people. And then it fades to black. Now, there are a lot of hard fade to blacks in this movie. So if you remember watching old TNT movies, and it's almost like movies were cut for commercials, they would break at certain points so that a commercial would come in. This movie plays like that. So right in the middle of while something's happening, it'll just go, bam, hard cut, black and then it'll just start somewhere else so for whatever reason it does that hard cuts and we see a i guess he'd be like a talent man well actually you see a, a nbc rep is getting into this bar now it's the same bar that corky started at he gets in he talks to this talent manager guy that's going to be our burgess meredith character character excuse me and he comes in and he says you got to see this guy's show and he's wanting to sell this to the network and even before he walked in we see outside of that same dive bar that it says like 20 plus weeks straight, you know, come see this, whatever. And when the NBC guy is talking to, uh, his name is Ben, uh, the Burgess Meredith character, his name is Ben. So he goes in, he talks to Ben and we see Corky walk out and he's about to do a show. And for me, when this first happened, I thought, is this a hallucination? Is this something that's actually happening? You know, or is, are we watching something that's happening in Corky's imagination? Because this is very beginning of the movie. We really don't know what's happening yet. 
Well, they sit down. Corky starts doing his act, and of course he still looks just as nervous and sweaty, and he's kind of bombing in a way right up front, and the NBC guy looks super unimpressed. Of course, Ben's character is great. He's smoking a big cigar and just looks confident, like, you know, just waiting for the bang, you know, just like he, he knows what's going to happen. So anyway, someone starts heckling, him, heckling Corky from the back of the audience and says something like, well, if you can do so good, why don't you come up here and show me? And so Corky runs back there to confront the guy, and what is it? It's a ventriloquist dummy. And here's where we meet Fats for the first time. That's going to be the dummy's name. So when I say Fats, you're going to know who I'm talking about. Corky and Fats. Uh, that's our, our duo for this film. He go and gets him. He goes back to the stage. And basically, he's charming the crowd with Fats. When we're having a conversation. You know, Fats is kind of like the, you know, says lewd and rude things and kind of makes fun of Corky and that kind of stuff and it just sells great and then Ben goes into this great big thing about the reason why magic and all that is dying is because of TV magic is all about misdirection and he said you can't misdirect on TV because the camera sees everything however he sees this as a bridge between those two because everyone's going to be looking at fats while Corky does all the magic makes sense so NBC guys all in and they decide to start you know moving forward to try to See if they can get a pilot for a show. Something funny also that I was thinking about, you know, this movie was made in 78. However, this is the exact same shtick as the Jeff Dunham guy. Do you know who Jeff Dunham is? If not, he was on America. Just Google his name. Super famous guy. But I think he started on America's Got Talent. Maybe. Well, I won't say started. I'm sure he had a career before that, but he kind of blew up after that. Did America's Got Talent. He's got a whole bunch of different ventriloquists dolls that he uses one of them's a jalapeno on a stick and he does a bunch of other just hilarious stuff they all have different personalities and the guy's a master of the craft but it's just kind of funny to me that what he's doing essentially is what the whole idea for this film is uh, as far as their stage show so but that was kind of neat i'm sure he's not the first to do it. i'm sure there's a bunch after that but you know who still does that stuff besides that guy i have no idea i have no frame of reference for it so we fast forward a little bit, another one of those hard breaks, you know, screen goes black and we come out and Ben is telling Corky that he's going to be a star, NBC's going to pick him up, he's kind of going over the details of it with him and he just kind of side mentions that, you know, hey, here's the things you got to do before we can start recording and one of them was a medical exam and Corky just kind of loses it. He's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And, you know, Ben is kind of trying to play ball with him, trying to coax him into it. And Corky's just like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it because me taking a medical exam implies somehow that there's something wrong with me. Now, I will say the only part about this film is it's all about this psychological issues that this guy has. But they don't really, I mean, you you know he has a problem. And then when you see this part, it it's kind of just doesn't feel right. You know, it doesn't pass the sniff test kind of thing. Like, why does he not want to take this medical exam? Well, he tells Ben that it's got something to do with principle. You know, he, go, he tells Ben, like, hey, do we have a contract? No, it's just verbal because it's about principle. You know, I trust you. You do a service for me. I, you know, go out and perform for you. Why do I have to do all this other stuff? And so he uses that same thing to say, well, you know, it's just my principles. I don't want to do it. I'll take a medical exam because I shouldn't have to. There's nothing wrong with me. I do the show. I'll come out and do the show for them. And Ben just kind of asked him point blank, like, well, is this a deal breaker? And Corky just shuts him down. He's like, yep, sure is. So Corky freaks out because of this and gets a cab and goes downtown. And I don't remember if you know this 
right away or not, but he goes and visits like his old family home and the graveyard and all that. He's trying to find somewhere to go and just decompress from the stress of, you know, possibly becoming famous and the whole stress of them wanting to do this medical exam, I guess, is kind of where this is coming from because they might find something out or he might find something out about himself. It, you don't really know where this is going at first. So we kind of get in the weeds here in the middle of the film. Oh, and before I, before I forget, there's this great part after they have that meeting and Ben's freaking out because he's his talent agent or whatever it's called. And he goes back to the office because he's like, shit, I don't want to lose this, you know, this contract or this deal with these guys. And he walks into his office and he asks his assistant, what's the first rule of being an agent? And she says, never forget that Lincoln was killed by an actor. And I just, for whatever reason, it's a hilarious line. And... Is that, is that true? Was John Wilkes Booth an actor? Anyway, 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 anyway. So, yeah, hilarious line. So, anyway, Corky takes off, and he goes to visit all these old places. He's trying to find some place uh, that's going to offer him some comfort, and he drives way out next to a lake somewhere, and he pays the cabbie $100 to say, hey, you never brought me here. Keep this a secret. Here's some hush money. And again, we don't know why this is happening. I mean, who's looking for him, you know? And he goes to a I'm, I want to I don't know what this place is like a, a bed and breakfast kind of thing or whatever that's I guess because there's a main house and there's cabins by the lake and the main house is where you would go to eat breakfast and stuff but you don't sleep there you sleep out in the cabins so he goes the lady says we're closed he says I'll pay you double or whatever if you give me a room she says sure and he goes to his cabin and and, and takes Corky out of the box and this is one of the first times I'm sorry he takes fats out of the box and this is one of the first times in the film that fats is talking to corky in other words he's not doing a show fats isn't on his arm or anything like that he's just kind of sitting there and the camera pans to him and it shows him talking now his mouth isn't moving or anything like that but the voices are different so when corky's speaking he sounds like corky when fats is talking he has a totally different uh tonality to his speech speech pattern all that kind of stuff is different his cadence everything is different so and come to find out well i read two things one said that both of these are anthony hopkins voice you know he does the voice for both of these and then someone else had wrote that like one of the cds it was a different like when it came out on dvd or whatever like it was uh it was a different voicing for fats which would be weird all right so fats is talking to him and out of nowhere, Corky says something like she didn't remember me and we find out that Corky knows the girl that's running the place and that he went to high school with her and he's all sad because she didn't remember him then it goes to her in her house and she's looking at a yearbook and she's like he doesn't remember me so now we know why he went of course he's looking for parts of his past he goes to this house and now we know where that connection is later on that day Corky goes back up to the house for some excuse he needs towels or soap or something like that and he has fats with him of course so you realize that now he kind of goes everywhere with fats this will come into play later so he has fats he goes into the house and kind of breaks the ice with doing the act with fats talking to her and kind of doing a little bit of his routine for her. she is eating it up i've never you know maybe there just wasn't a lot of entertaining stuff back in the 70s i think there was but they just eat up the fats act it's just big deal. I mean, she just instantly melts. All the stress, all the tension is just gone. And they 
tell each other that they did remember, but they thought the other one didn't remember. And it's kind of cute. You know, like when, you know, like when people are like, well, I'm going to hang up, you hang up. No, you hang up. No, you hang up first. So they kind of have this little, um, very juvenile interaction with each other, you know, like they maybe did in high school. I think it might be important to also note that he is still very awkward and timid, but he is flirty. He's, he's still trying to spit a little game, you know, in his awkward, quirky way, but still just, you know, an awkward dude. So he does all this. He, oh, and by the way, her name is Peggy Ann Snow. Oh, Peggy Ann. Oh, Peg. Peggy Snow. So he goes back. He gets the stuff. She does mention to him that she is married. Um, but that she's unhappy, awkward. So he goes back to his cabin or bungalow or whatever you want to call it. And Fats just straights up talking shit to him. And this is also another step for us in his psychological breakdown that we see that Fats is, you know, his partner, but also gives him a lot of shit. Fats gets jealous. Fats doesn't want to share him, that kind of stuff. So Fats starts talking trash. And this is also where we start seeing the mood and the tone of the film being built. Like I said, it was, we're, we're a little bit in the weeds earlier, but now with lighting and camera angles and all that kind of stuff, we really kind of start to build the mood and the uneasiness and the darkness that this film is going to put forward. It, the musical score of it, it's, da- you know, it's dated as far as just, you know, the background noise of it, but it still does have the the features is it that it needs to produce a certain type of mood. So it wasn't bad. It was just dated. So, so, uh, I can't remember if it's the next day or later that night. He goes, he goes back to Peggy and he starts talking to her because she is married, but her husband is gone on some kind of trip. I don't remember what he's doing. And she's asking him about magic tricks. And he says something about how Merlin had this trick. He was obsessed with magic, true magic. He wanted real true magic. And he says there's a card trick where you can read the other person's mind. And that Merlin wanted to do this with his wife to prove that they loved each other so much they could read each other's mind. And they start to do this card trick. And it gets tense. So he's sitting down with Peggy. He's doing this card trick. And he's, he's telling her, you know, you, gotta, you have to think of it. You can think of nothing else. And he's being very intense and very, I guess, trying to be impressive. And the first time you do the trick, oh, it doesn't work. Oh, shit. And he loses it. He starts yelling at her. He's telling her she's not thinking hard enough. She's ruined the trick and all that. And she actually starts getting scared. And I believe she even says that at some point. You know, he's like, you know, think of your car. She's like, I'm thinking of it. He's like, oh, she's like, I'm scared. And so it just kind of gets off the rails for a second. Now, he's not, and they make it a point to not make him intimidating in any way. He's kind of a smaller framed guy he he talks meek he doesn't really own the space that he's in that kind of thing so she but when so when he does blow up and start yelling like that it's uh it's a different side you know it's it makes you instantly uncomfortable second time around the trick works and he's all sweaty and looking like he was trying like a lot of mental energy to, to focus and pick this out of her brain so you know when a trick like that works what do you do you bang the dude if you're Peggy Ann Snow. That's what you do, even though you're married and your husband's not home. You bang this dude that just came to your house and was just yelling at you two minutes ago and just did this bomb-ass, you know, magic trick in front of you. So is is this how this works? I mean, I'm thinking of, like, David Blaine, Chris Angel, David Copperfield. Is this sex for magic tricks? Is that how this kind of—I mean, if you're—okay, if you're a listener out there, male or female, or whatever you identify as— has anyone ever done a magic trick and you were just like, 
this guy or girl or whoever is is getting lucky tonight. That's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I had the two of clubs. They said two of clubs, and I just, you know, instantly am thinking of Pound Town. I don't know. So it worked in this movie, or it works on Peggy Ann Snow. So Corky, I mean, he talks about being a failure, but, you know, that you passed the fucking vibe check on that one, I guess. All right, so moving on. They do end up having sex. He goes back to his own cabin after that, and it's... Uh, Fats is like in the dark, like, you you know, like anyone waiting on their spouse to get home that they suspect is doing something weird and, you know, like smoking a cigarette in the dark, waiting for him to turn the lights on. So he he comes in there. He's all happy about that. Fats is in there and Fats just starts roasting him. Fats just starts giving him a hard time and he starts arguing with Fats and actually picks him up. And it looks like, and I'm sure they're trying to make it look like he's actually fighting with him. So he's physically you know, shaking him and Fats is, sh- is shaking him back and this kind of stuff. And he's yelling at him. And then all of a sudden he turns. And for me, this was the best part in the whole movie. He turns around and his door is open and Ben is standing in his doorway. If you remember, Ben is his talent agent. And there is this awkward silence that lasts just long enough for you to feel like, oh, fuck. Ben has this great line. He just says, how long you been like this, kid? And he's, you know, in that cool voice that he has. And he's just asking him very sincerely. You know, he's he sees that and he can't believe what he's seeing. But you also realize that all these other things are starting to make sense. But yeah, you ask him how long you had been like that. Of course, Corky tries to, he goes into this frantic, you know, explanation about how it's a new act. Come check it out. It's not polished yet. You know, I can't wait for you to see it. Did you actually think that this was this was real? No, this is part of the act. And he's just, you know, sweating it, trying to prove this to him. Well, Ben's not having it because he's a no-nonsense kind of guy. He's seen it all. He's been in the biz for his whole, you know, career or whatever. So he knows what's up. Well, Ben sits him down and they really, he starts talking to him about this, about, you know, what's this all about? How long have you been like this? I want to get you some help. And Ben is sincere. Now, Ben might be sincere because he's just trying to protect his investment, but he's telling him, I have all these great doctors. They can all help you out. We'll get this fixed. We'll get this show started. No problem. It's not a big deal. Well, Corky, of course, is fighting against. There's nothing wrong with me. I can handle this. Uh, None of this is real. And finally, Ben just tells him, Corky, you're not in control. And when he says that, the, the camera that's on him, that's on... Corky and Fats, you can see Fats is in the foreground and Corky is kind of blurred out, which is a really cool way of them to just kind of say he's not in control. You know, when you're looking at the two of them, Fats is the one that is, uh, you know, clearly visible and all that, and he's kind of in the forefront. So that is who Corky is putting forward to represent, you know, whatever emotional state he's in, that, that, that kind of deal. So Ben finally, to test him, and to see, you know, to make sure that he's not completely cracked, he asked Corky to do one thing. And, of course, Corky's all like, yeah, sure, fine, whatever. And he's like, can you make Fats shut the hell up for five minutes? And he's like, if you can do that, we'll move forward, no problem. And so Corky accepts, of course, and he sets Fats on the couch there next to him. And this whole scene here, this is very much, to me, you know, some scenes are just so, I don't know, maybe it's the writing or whatever, maybe it's just all of it put together. But you know the scene in... I guess it's Inglorious Bastards where they're sitting at the table. I think it's at the beginning of the film. And the 
the Nazi guy is talking to the fam, the the guy that's hiding people under the house in the very beginning. That scene is just so awkward. Now, of course, this isn't as intense with violence or anything, or the threat of violence that's going on, but just like having a secret and someone knowing and knowing what's going to happen and you know the inevitable and all that kind of stuff. This scene had that same feel to me, where you're just, you know, like how is this going to go? There's no way out. It's all just right there, open full Monty in front of you and you're just going to have to witness what happens. So he's sitting in front of him and he looks, uh, Ben looks down at his watch. He starts it up for five minutes and Corky is just squirming the whole time. He can't sit still. He's looking all over the place. He keeps moving around. After a couple of seconds, Ben actually pulls out, he has these huge cigars and they're in glass tubes, pulls a cigar out, lights it up and he, he throws the glass so it busts on the floor, and he's just stonewalling him. And Ben's not talking to him. He's not interacting with him. Just literally sit here for five minutes without saying anything. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know if I could sit still for five minutes and not fucking talk. It's just not in me. Ah! So anyway, he breaks the thing. He's doing all this stuff. Corky asks him for a cigar, and then Corky goes into this thing like, hey, do you think we'll laugh about this one day? Do you think, you know, you should write a book about this when you write about your life. You should write about how funny this was and all that. And as he's talking, as, as Corky is talking to him about all this, he keeps asking him what time it is. Now, I'm going to do a little cinema nerd here, and I'm going to tell you that the time does not match up. So, you know, we ask Ben, like, how long it's been. Ben will say it's been 30 seconds. It's uh, We're almost at a minute, something like that. And he asked him a lot like that soon. I don't even think he makes it to like three minutes. And Corky's already asked him four different times, how much time do we got left? How much time has gone by? And if I actually put a timer to it just to see. And it doesn't match up because I thought, man, this scene, it seems so long. Just because of the acting and everything, you can really feel that the stress and anxiety that uh, quirky is feeling during this whole thing so they do play with the time a little bit in this but you won't notice it when you're watching it um you're welcome for ruining it but just don't think about it while you're watching it because it's still a cool movie and then all of a sudden quirky takes a big breath and he just he holds his head up in in a manner that is def very much defeated and he just says i can't do it i can't do it and ben says I didn't think you could, kid. So Ben gets up. He's getting all his stuff together, and he's going to leave. And Corky asks him where he's going, and he's like, I got to go make some phone calls. And Corky's still holding on to hope. He's like, to, to tell everyone that we're good for the show, right, to do all this or whatever? And he says, no. So he's starting to leave. Corky kind of confronts him, and Fats is yelling at him like, hey, man, you can't let him leave. You know, he's he's going to ruin all this for us. He's going to do all this stuff. So Corky's just hammering him, hammering him, hammering him. As the dude's walking out the door, Ben starts walking out the door. Corky grabs him. Ben's like, get your fucking hands off me. He's like, I survived all these other weird things. I don't know what it is, but some kind of major events. And uh, Ben leaves. Well, as he leaves, Corky's like, well, you saw me, Fats. I tried to stop him. I tried to do all this and that. And Fats is like, you didn't try to do shit. You're a puss. Come grab me and let's handle this. So that's exactly what he does. Ben uses, I'm sorry, Corky, fuck. Corky uses Fats and sneaks out into the woods where Ben is walking back to his car and clocks Ben over the head and kills Ben using fats like a bat because these ventriloquist dolls i mean it's like solid wood it's not plastic composite or anything this is just a solid wood thing so he beats him to death and 
Peg comes out and yells at him because she hears a scuffle out in the woods. And, you know, Corky just kind of blows her off or whatever. So she buys it. She goes back inside. Well, you start hearing moaning and you're like, oh, fuck, Ben's still alive. He walks over to Ben and you think he's going to go over there and try to help Ben. No, it slowly pans over to Fats. And who's moaning on the ground? It's Fats. Fats says his head hurts. There's blood all over the side of Fats, which is obviously Ben's blood. It's not going to be fats's blood but i think this is what they're trying to do. They, they do all these scenes that just sort of blur the lines a little bit just enough to where as you're watching it you're asking yourself is is fats alive is is fats actually you know the one doing this or is this does the corky give him power so you, you're kind of confused and there's only two or three scenes that do this i, I think there's only two scenes that that i can remember where fats seemingly moves on his own maybe his head shifts or his eyes move or something like that where you're like oh wait okay so he's alive but then that's the only time it ever happens so you're like am i seeing this because this is what's happening inside corky's head i don't know so that's our first murder he murders him long story short fats tells him to put rocks in the guy's pocket and and drown him out in the lake so corky ends up doing that he's swimming out in the lake with ben in his arms Ben ends up waking up and struggling with him in the middle of the lake. They didn't need this scene. I'm not real for sure why they put it in there, but they did. They could have just had him drown him out there and it wouldn't have changed. But it just did. It added a little more kind of gotcha scare, I guess. So he, he wrestles with him and Corky ends up in the struggle because Ben's so much older. He just drowns the guy and sinks him to the bottom of the lake. So the next morning he's there and he's eating breakfast and Peg says that her, or I'm sorry, before he even makes it to the house, Peg comes down to his little bungalow and says, hey, my husband's home. He was asking questions about us. And, you know, so just understand that he's been asking some questions, you know, and to just play it right when you get up here. And of course, Corky doesn't want to go up there now because he's like, well, maybe I should just stay home. And she's like, well, no, that'll look more suspicious. You need to come and just eat breakfast like you normally would if you were staying here. So he gets up there. We meet Peg's husband, which is Duke. They had talked about him earlier. You know, you kind of get the idea that Duke was the hot shot in high school and she married him. And uh, they had talked about how things had changed. He let himself go or whatever. So when you see Duke for the first time on purpose, he looks rough. He's, he's balding. His hair's kind of wild. He's got a big beard. And I think earlier they'd said something about, does Duke, st- does Duke still look like James Dean? And he does certainly does not. So anyway, Duke comes up. They have this conversation in the kitchen. I'll kind of blow through it. He gets fat. Of course, Fats comes out because now we know that Corky can't handle anything on his own. So he's got the ventriloquist dummy. He makes a couple of rude jokes or whatever and goes through, kind of lowers Duke's guards a little bit. And uh, Duke says he's got to go do some work or whatever. He'll talk to him later. So he goes off. And while he goes to check on these cabins, he ends up finding Ben's car. And he's like, what the fuck? So he yells at everyone. They all go to the car. They check it out. Corky's playing it cool. Oh, my gosh. I don't know what this is. I don't know who this could be. And he comes up with some kind of wild story and says he's going to go get help. Well... Duke goes back into the house with Peg, and he's talking to her about it, and he's like, you know, this guy, this quirky dude's full of shit. I don't believe him, and he's like, now I don't believe you about what's going on. I know he knows who that car is for and what it's all about, and I think Duke is drunk at this point. I think they talked about how he is an alcoholic, and, you know, things have just been rough last couple of years. Well, he's drinking and talking to Peg, and that that domestic situation kind of starts to elevate a little bit, and it finally gets to where Duke grabs her by the arm or the shoulders or something, spins her around, and says something about asking her if she had slept with him. And she hits him with the, I didn't, but I wish I did. 
oh man, fucking fuck you, Duke. You know what I mean? So, so uh, he ends up leaving. Well, it, it it does another hard cut to black. It it does another one of these, right? And so then when it comes back, Duke is at. Corky's cabin, and you, you, he's asking. It looks like they're already in the middle of a conversation. That that's kind of weird about these hard cuts, and I don't know, maybe if that's just the episode that I wa- That's just the one that I watched that kind of ended up like that. But Hallie's hard cut, so he's talking to him. He's like, "Hey, let's go fishing," and Corky's like, "I, I, I don't know. It's kind of weird. Like, I guess we can go." Well, they get out. He gets him out on the boat, and of course, Duke is making this uncomfortable. You already know what this conversation is going to be about, and Corky does too. So he gets on the boat. They go out. Duke takes a shot of, uh, you know, liquor or something, whatever's in his flask. And he tells Corky that Peg told him that they had had sex. And, of course, Corky doesn't fall for it. He's like, Are, you know, is this just one of those things where you're going to try to get me to admit to something that didn't happen? They start talking about it. And then Duke just kind of, you know, confesses to Corky like, hey, man, I've, I've really been screwing up. I don't know how to make this right. I want to make me and Peg better or whatever. So... The conversation really turns. You think it's going to go one way, and then he's basically just asking Corky for help. Like, hey, man, can you talk to her? Or can you help me fix my marriage, I guess? And yeah, ask me, it sounds like Corky's trying to fix his marriage in a quirky way. So anyway, while they're fishing, Duke's line gets stuck on something heavy. And as he starts pulling it up, Corky's freaking out because he's afraid he's about to pull a fucking dead body out of this lake, and it's going to be Ben. So as he's reeling it up, Corky gets ready to smash this guy over the head, and then right as whatever's under there crests the water, it ends up just being like a log or something or a stick. So you're like, oh, oh man, you know, I thought this is about to be over right here, right? And so Corky sits down, everyone chills out. Corky actually takes a drink of the liquor after saying that he doesn't. And then while they're just sitting there, just kind of, you know, letting that tension settle, Duke looks up, and the dead body is just there on the fucking creek bank. And so... Another cut, another hard cut. Nothing happens from it. They go over there, and they're trying to see if this guy is still alive. Of course, it's Ben, so we know it's not. Corky says he's going to go get some help. While Corky is off to doing whatever he's doing, to look for help or do whatever it is, uh, Duke is suspicious. Duke's been suspicious. He's super suspicious now because there's a dead body on his property. So he goes back to um, Corky's cabin and... He's just looking for something. He's looking for some evidence. He ends up finding Ben's wallet and a couple of other things, like a bloody rag or something like that. And he, this is where we see Fat's head move. And we're like, what the fuck? So his head moves. And I can't remember, I can't remember if he actually says something to him or what. I think he just makes a noise or something. And so he does something to get, or, Corky. Uh, Fats does something to get Duke's attention. Duke walks over there and gets stabbed by Fats. He gets stabbed. He lays there. He dies from uh, essentially bleeding to death, I would assume. And then out from behind this little curtain that Fats was in front of comes Corky. So originally we thought, oh shit, this is Fats. No, it was still Corky behind the scenes. The whole misdirection thing that they're trying to, you know, hammer you with comes out and now Corky's kind of freaking out. For whatever reason, I believe Peg's still gone in this, so he ends up doing the same thing with Duke's body. We assume it doesn't show at this time, but he wraps it up, does whatever, and puts it out, drowns it out in the, or, you know, sinks it out in the lake. So Peg comes by later. After all this, Corky comes up with some story about him going, him getting mad or something, and that he was going to go for help, and or maybe not for help. He was going to go hunting or some kind of weird excuse. I, I don't know how we bypass this other body. 
But anyway, Peg comes back to Corky's cabin and tells Corky pretty much like, hey, I want to be with you. You know, uh, they had talked about running away together and all that before Duke got back. And she's like, I want to do it. Let's do it. Let, let's get out of here. I'm, I'm ready to be done with all this. And Corky thinks, wow, that's great. My plan's working out great. All this is going great. But what does Peg say? She goes, well, I want to wait till Duke gets back because I want to be able to tell him to his face that I'm leaving for his dignity or for whatever reason. Corky tries to talk her out of it. She's not having it. So she goes back up the house to get some stuff and to wait on Duke. Corky goes back to the cabinet. And, of course, Fats is freaking out because Fats understands that their relationship is now about to be over. So Corky starts packing Fats up, putting him in the box, saying, hey, man, it's just going to be me and her for a little while. It's not just going to be me and you. And there's also this, at this point in the film, that Fats and Corky are wearing the same clothes. So we start to see this melding of the two. They're coming together. They're becoming one. Their personalities and their brains, or whatever this is, very Fight Club-ish with the Tyler Durden stuff, where they are now going to be the same person it's not going to be able to differentiate so he puts him in the box tells him all that and as Corky is about to leave Fats mumbles from the box that he'll tell he says I'll tell and that little Fats voice and he says tell what tell what and so he goes talks to him basically says that he's going to drop dime on him about all the murders and all that kind of stuff if he leaves with Peg so with all this in mind Corky goes up to visit Peg at the house where she's waiting. And he brings Fats with him. Well, he's in there talking to her about, you know, hey, has Duke been back yet? Or what's going on? Or, you know, is it just going to be us? He's getting a little mouthy with her. And then he pulls Fats out to talk. And as soon as he gets Fats out, Fats tells Peg about the magic trick and about how it was the mind-reading trick where, like, true love kind of stuff, how it was all crap. And he knew it when he does it, and when he did it, and he does it all the time to sleep with chicks and all this kind of stuff. So he says all that. She's obviously hurt by it. Goes upstairs, locks herself in the room. And, you know, you're thinking as this happens that, is this Fats talking? Or is this still, you know, is Fats actually someone separate? Or is this Corky? And did Corky just tell on himself with Fats? So he gets into an argument with Fats downstairs. And Fats tells him, do you know why I told her this? Do you know why I, you know, ratted you out about the trick? And he says, and, and even better yet, do you know why you couldn't do anything about it? And he said, because you can't. And so this is Fats kind of taking over his master, so to say, of him being completely in control of Corky. Now, they do a great job of this. This scene is so good because it's the final, it's the scene of him finally cracking, uh, you know, the, the, the stress of everything and then the two murders and then she's not going to leave with him nothing's working out for him it's just hit after hit after hit so he gives it all up to fats and fats starts commanding him around like he's the dummy now he doesn't do this little marionette dance or nothing like that but there's this fucking psychotic scene where fats is telling him what to do like jump up and down turn in a circle crawl on the floor bark like a dog do all these different things and he is just not only gladly doing it, but like manically doing it, you know, has to obey what Fats is saying. And he's like, yeah, Fats, yeah, this is a great idea. And it's just a total break of this sweet, meek, you know, kind of dude that we've been dealing with for the whole film to this just like psychopath, you know, complete mental breakdown type thing that's happening to him here at the end. And right in the middle of why this big crescendo is happening you know, when they're jabbering on, it's just like, he's like, get my knife. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'll get your knife. He's like, kill Peg. And he's like, wait a minute, what? The fuck do you mean kill Peg? He's like, well, we can't do that. No, I don't want to do that because he's still, you know, a, 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 a sweet dude. Can you call him a sweet dude after he's killed two people uh, in cold blood? I don't know. 
You know what I mean, though. He's a nice guy. He's, he's still a nice guy. He didn't want to kill Peg anyway. So he tells him to get the knife. He tells him to do it. He says he's not going to do it. And then I guess Fats gives him like these super bad migraines and then makes his stomach really sh- with sharp pains in his belly or something like that because he's like looking in the mirror and he's screaming and Fats gives him all this stuff and then takes it away from him. And Fats is basically letting him know I can do this whenever I want. And, you know, these, I, I believe after watching all these different films, I believe it's the haunted houses, poltergeist, demony kind of stuff. And then anything that has to do with psychological horror, those things just really, when they're done right, they're just, they're just beautiful to watch. And this was the same way, but here we understand that, you know, this is still in his head, but he's doing it to himself. Oh, it's just so fun. It's just great, man. It's just a great idea and done well for a 70s film. So he decides that he's going to go and get the knife. And like I said, this scene for me, it was very much when you have these solo mental break scenes. I think about, you know, Psycho, uh, Hereditary. This was done really good. Fight Club. This was done. The Shining, that kind of stuff. Is this movie those movies? Nah. But, you know. It's in the same vein. It's, you know, I would watch it. I'd, I'd watch it again, really. It's a good movie. So, great solo acting by Anthony Hopkins. Believable, intense, and incredibly sad and lonesome. It really is when this happens. You, you really feel bad for him, even though he's killed two people. So, he gets a knife. He goes to Peg's room, and he's the door is locked. Well, he's trying to get in, and then he's trying to coax her out by talking to her, and then he starts talking as Fats, so we don't know his Fats at the door, or his Corky at the door. Who's at the door? All we know is he has the knife, and Corky's told her to, told him to kill her. So, she says something about wanting to come, or she's not going to come out, she'll come out later, whatever, and he ends up telling her, well, I got a surprise for you. Well, you're thinking it's the knife. Yeah, he's got a surprise for her, all right. But, Turns out it's a little wooden carved heart, which goes back to a story they told earlier in the film. Just watch it to find out. He leaves this heart at her door. She ends up, and then he says he's going to leave. Well, of course, you're thinking what I'm thinking. He's going to pretend like he walks off when she opens it. Stabby stab Tom. Nope. She opens it. There actually is a little wooden carved heart there, and he is hiding up the hallway. They do like a pan, like they zoom out, and you see that. Uh, Anthony Hopkins' character is actually just hidden kind of in the stairwell kind of thing there with the knife in his hand. But he doesn't end up stabbing her or attacking her or anything like that. I think he might actually have like a smile on his face or something. And then, of course, what do we get? Another hard cut to black. Hard cut. Bam. And what does it go to? It goes to Corky sitting across from Fats is on like the couch, I think, and Corky's sitting in the floor and he had just, he's just stabbed himself. So they're not even in the house anymore. This is like our final, and I know I always say this about gothic scenes. I know I bring that up a lot and maybe even overuse it. But what I mean is just kind of these melancholy, you know, death, suicide kind of things at the end are very uh, gothic to me, you know, and that's the way this one uh, kind of was. They're sitting across from each other. Corky has stabbed himself. He's bleeding out. He feels like, you know, he can feel that he is dying. And he goes into this little short monologue about how she, he didn't fail. He gave her the the thing that, you know, the little wooden heart thing, and she loved it. He didn't have to do any tricks. He didn't have to misdirect. He didn't have to lie. He didn't have to do anything. He just gave her a gift, and she liked it. And that's all he needed to do. So he goes back. He kills himself, obviously, because he knows he can't control fats. And if Fats wants him to kill her, that's what's going to happen because he can't stop him. And so he kills himself. Well, Fats doesn't understand. Fats, Fats is on the other side of the couch, and he starts talking about how he doesn't feel so good. His stomach hurts. He thinks he's dying. And they're talking to each other about 
dying. And it's such a weird, such a weird scene as they both die. And Fats is saying stuff like, I don't want to die first. I don't want to be alone. And so Corky goes over there and sits next to him. And they both just bleed out and die together. And Corky says something at the end about, uh, what is it? Fat Fats is, says something about, I don't want to die first. And then Corky says, I don't think that's how it works. I think we'll die together not separate or something. And then Fats tells him that tells Corky that they're not separate people, that it's always been you. We've always both just lived inside you. Now that's kind of obvious. I think, you know, I know what they were trying to do with that big, you know, reveal at the end for him to say that, but it just didn't have the, the punch that I think it needed to, because it was just not necessary. I think we as the audience already knew that because the whole movie pushed us in that direction. So didn't need Fats to say it, but the fact that Fats can, you know, hear, Corky's character is dying and the other side of his brain, his psychosis or whatever is also dying and telling him that he's dying. So it's just a, I don't know, sad scene. It's kind of weird. And then of course, what do we get? It's another hard cut to black and you think the movie's over and should it have been over right here? I think it would have worked. I think it would have worked just fine if the movie ended right here, but it didn't. What happens? Someone's coming down the little boardwalk thing, coming up to his little bungalow where he's in there, you know, already dead. And who is it? It's Peg. Peg got the heart. She's had a change of heart because of it. And she's coming down there to tell Corky, hey, let's do it. Let's just run away together. And I guess it's supposed to be sad. Like, oh, man, if he just wouldn't have been in there stabbing himself to death, he could have just wound up with Peg. But on the flip side of that, I feel good about it because Peg would have wound up with a guy that's already killed two people to be with her. Now, as sweet as that might be, it also means that he will kill someone because his alter ego doll ventriloquist thing tells him to do something he's gonna do it so you know that's why i think that part should have been left out just let it end with the suicide thing and then that would have been the end of it so and that is the film everyone that is magic that's anthony hopkins go and give that thing a watch i really enjoyed it uh like subscribe follow share if you can give me a follow it helps out a super bunch Watch some old cataloged episodes if you have it. I'm trying to get these things to be better and better as they go along. So if there's something you like, something you don't like, definitely try to let me know in the comments. You can send me a personal message on Instagram or you can email me at justjameshorrorpodcast at gmail. So any way you want to, get in touch with me. Let me know what you think. Let me know how you feel. Let me know if you got a book or a movie you want me to review. And it feels so good to be back into watching some horror movies because that's what this is all about. I think what I might start doing, as a matter of fact, is watching maybe an old movie and then alternating into something that's newer, I will say. Not brand new, but just something that is newer and more up to date because I don't want to do too many classic films and then do too many new films. I think I'm going to mix it up. That way we can have a good variety. Plus, I enjoy watching these movies and it really broadens my perspective and, and knowledge on these films. So, yeah. Stay tuned after the end music if you want to hear some bloopers. If not, this is the end of the show. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. Tell a friend, tell your mom, tell your dad, tell your sister, tell your brother, tell another person's mother. This is the Just James Horror Review. Take care. Shove your hand up his ass. Nah, fuck it, we'll keep it. Pause for a motherfucking beat. And the more you start looking at it, <clears throat> fuck. Shit, was his name even John Wilkes Booth? Oh, God. I don't know history. Shame on me. You're running, you're